0: A happy friday one and all you have made it to the weekend and we want to welcome you to this new mexico in focus podcast for friday april 22nd 2022 i am your host kevin mcdonald i am an executive producer here at new mexico pbs we hope you are surviving the windy weather today the winds are so bad in fact that even the national weather service issued a extreme fire condition warning today for most of New Mexico. This comes on the heels of last week where we had a slew of fires. We have a pretty bad one burning right now, the Cook's Peak Fire up around Cimarron in northern New Mexico where folks are on standby for potential evacuations. So again, two weeks in a row with major fire danger in New Mexico. That's why we're doing things a little different this week. Uh, For New Mexico PBS, we produced an hour-long Our Land special. Our Land, for those of you who don't know, is our environmental series with correspondent Laura Paskus. The special we did is called The Longest Season, an Our Land Wildfire Special. And it really calls back on a lot of great reporting that Laura Paskus has done in uh, the last couple of years on the subject of climate change and wildfires we know that the wildfires are getting bigger and we know that they are getting uh, more devastating and stronger all of that tied to climate change we know a couple of our recent fires actually started out as prescribed fires which are supposed to help ward off serious wildfires and so there's a lot to dig into here in this special from Just what are the differences and how bad is the wildfire season getting to be? Why is it happening earlier like we're seeing it this year? What about the folks who uh, have the difficult task of trying to protect life and property when these wildfires break out? That is a story that has opened our eyes over the course of the last year. These federal wildland firefighters making anywhere from $13 to $15 an hour on a seasonal job. lose their benefits when the season ends and there is a movement to change all of that but not happening soon enough when we consider how bad the fire season is getting and we hinted at it earlier as well If prescribed burns are going to be so uh, threatening uh, to branch out into uncontrolled fires what do we do to try to curb the risk of wildfires in New Mexico what can you do if you live uh, in a wooded area to protect your home do what you can There's so much information to get into and of course today is also Earth Day and we've got a special message from Laura Pascus for Earth Day a ton to share with you here so we're gonna give it to you in its entirety We encourage you to stream it as well on the PBS app when you get a chance uh, but a lot of hard work want to thank a lot of folks for the effort they put into this And again, this is the longest season, an Our Land Wildfire special here on New Mexico and Focus, the podcast.
1: Funding for New Mexico and Focus provided by viewers like you. Forest fire is one of these things that is increasing, not in small incremental bits, but exponentially.
2: We're really kind of approaching a train wreck in, in and in a serious issue where firefighters are tired. They're kind of challenged uh, mentally and physically.
1: Over the last nearly four decades, we've seen the annual area burned increase by over 300%.
3: It's really starting to enter a crisis mode. Wildfire season, burning early in New Mexico. This week, we address the startling realities facing forest agencies and wildland firefighters while trying to sharpen the focus on potential solutions to the growing problem-threatening communities around our state. The longest season, an Our land wildfire special starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Several wildfires are burning right now in New Mexico. We knew this summer had the potential to be a destructive fire season, but even before we could get this special on the air, APRIL WEATHER CONDITIONS BLEW UP A NUMBER OF SERIOUS FIRES ACROSS THE STATE. THESE FIRES LIKE THE MCBRIDE FIRE IN RUIDOSO HAVE DESTROYED HUNDREDS OF HOMES, KILLED TWO PEOPLE SO FAR, AND FORCED THOUSANDS OF PEOPLE TO EVACUATE THEIR HOMES AND LIVESTOCK. THEY'RE ALSO CREATING MILLIONS OF DOLLARS IN DAMAGE IN THE COMMUNITIES THEY'VE THREATENED. THIS WEEK WE'RE FOCUSING EXCLUSIVELY ON WILDFIRES AND THE IMPACT THEY'RE HAVING AROUND OUR STATE. IN ABOUT 25 MINUTES WE'LL HEAR FROM AN EXPERT ON HOW YOU CAN BETTER PROTECT YOUR HOME FROM FIRES IF YOU LIVE IN A HIGH RISK AREA, AND WE'LL MAKE SURE YOU HAVE EVERY RESOURCE YOU NEED TO GET NOTIFIED IF A FIRE COMES YOUR WAY. THERE ARE ALSO SERIOUS CONCERNS ABOUT OUR ABILITY AS A COUNTRY TO SUPPORT AND RECRUIT THE FEDERAL WILDLAND FIREFIGHTERS ON THE FRONT LINES OF THESE DISASTERS. IN ABOUT 15 MINUTES, THREE FIREFIGHTERS SIT DOWN TO TALK ABOUT THE SERIOUS STRESSORS KEEPING PEOPLE FROM FILLING THOSE CRITICAL POSITIONS. At the bottom of the hour, a story that should give us some optimism when it comes to adjusting to these fires. We'll speak with a New Mexico community that's created and maintained its own forest management strategy. But for the rest of the state, how else can we keep these fires from growing out of control? We've already seen the Hermit's Peak fire swell beyond containment after starting as a prescribed burn. In about 40 minutes, we'll ask a forestry expert what other protective techniques we should be using. But we need to start with how we got here. This fire season blew up fast, really fast. And as bioclimatologist Park Williams tells environment reporter Laura Paskus, the reality is, in a warmer world, fire season is longer and scarier.
4: Park Williams, welcome. Thanks for joining me on New Mexico in Focus. Yeah, you bet. So you're a bioclimatologist. What does that mean?
1: Uh, Somebody who can't decide whether they like to study the life more or the climate more. Climate affects life and life affects climate. Uh, Vegetation life is something I'm really interested in and that especially has a big effect on climate. And so I study both and call myself a bioclimatologist.
4: In the Western United States, how has fire season changed and kind of what time period are we talking about?
1: Uh, Over the last century, uh, the uh, fire activity in the West has increased, but the vast majority of that increase has occurred since the late 70s or early 1980s. Our really good records of fires start in 1984, and that's when we start having really good, high-resolution satellite imagery that allows us to map where exactly each fire occurred. And what we've seen is across uh, the western United States, where we've got really good data going back to 1984, that over the last nearly four decades, we've seen the annual area burned increase by over 300%. Over 300% means three to four times as much fire burning, as much area, land area burning today as would be expected in an average year in the 1970s or 1980s. But if you look deeper and see where these increases are really occurring, then we see that they're mostly occurring in forested areas. Forest fire area has increased by over 1300% since the mid 1980s. Whereas outside of forested area, the increase in burned area has been about 165%. An increase in 165% is still a big deal. It means more than a doubling of area burned in non-forested area. And if the forest fire trend wasn't so huge, then that's what we'd be talking about is the doubling or tripling of burned area in non-forested areas. But forest fire has, has really stolen the show. And so question is, why is this occurring? Why are forest fires getting so much bigger? An interesting thing is that they're actually not getting that much more frequent. There's actually not many more forest fires today than there were in the 1980s. The thing is that the forest fires that are occurring today are way bigger than the forest fires in the 1980s. And that trend uh, was already getting concerning 10 years ago. And what we've seen in the last couple of years are really blowing people's minds. 2020, uh, the area burned in 2020 almost tripled the previous record in California. Uh, The previous record had just been set in 2017 or 2018, and that seemed extreme at the time. Then 2021 has almost reached the 2020 level. Forest fire is one of these things that is increasing, not in small incremental bits, but exponentially. And when we compare the annual area burn to forest to climate, it's really clear that the main driver is a drying of the climate. As the atmosphere has gotten warmer and drier over the last four decades, then fire growth has actually increased in a very predictable way. Even though 2020 was such an extreme outlier, if you just look at how much burned every year, that outlier was actually totally predictable based on how warm and dry it was in 2020 and 2021 is the same story.
4: It feels to me like we're on a trajectory and there might be good years and bad years, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what we need to be thinking about for the future?
1: Um, that hope, yeah, from the perspective of drought and fire, I think that hope is increasingly a bad thing to lean on. Um, hope is a great thing to use when we're gambling with um, the odds are 50-50, but if you establish a, uh, a system of, uh, of hope in a world where the dice are getting increasingly loaded uh, then hope becomes less and less realistic. This, but it's still clear that we're relying far too much on hope. Uh, the Forest Service this year uh, gave us a great example of this where forest fires were so extensive this summer across Northern California and Oregon and Washington and some of the Northern Rocky areas that the chief of the Forest Service uh, declared that for the rest of the year, the Forest Service would not be doing any more controlled burns or management of wildfire to, uh, in ways that allow wildfire to, um, uh, to burn uh, in ecologically favorable ways. What this means is that the Forest Service decided they were so spread thin on fighting fires, they needed to just focus on fighting fires and not use any resources toward using fire to uh to burn forested landscapes in order to eat away at this fire deficit that we've been building for the last decade or by for the last century by fighting fires many of the forests in the western united states are artificially dense because we have been successfully fighting fires for a century meaning the areas that could have burned in the 1950s and 60s didn't and today there's more fuel on the landscape than there would be otherwise so that when the inevitable fire comes today in a warmer world then that fire is much more likely to burn
5: very intensely. And I thought there just has to be a way where I can you know, make it possible, where we can make it possible for me and my neighbors to be able to cut that wood, which is incredibly valuable to us as firewood and is in our own backyards, and at the same time make our community and our watershed safer.
3: Many New Mexicans will remember the 2011 Los Conchas fire in the Jemez Mountains. It was the kind of fire that really showed us how extreme wildfires in the warmer world will be. The impacts are still reverberating today in the mountains, the watershed, and for downstream communities.
4: In June 2011, a massive wildfire ignited and erupted in the Jemez Mountains. In all, Las Conchas burned 156,000 acres, including about half of the Pueblo of Santa Clara's watershed.
6: The seat right around there.
4: Daniel Denapa, forestry director at the Pueblo, remembers (laughs) that summer. Just before Las Las Conchas, he was here in Santa Clara Canyon.
6: We're up here consulting with Governor Dashno at the time and we're actually looking at the forest conditions because it was so dry out here and we had almost a hundred percent what we call a probability of ignition.
4: The forest was parched hot and when a power line through the Santa Fe National Forest blew over the fire blazed into action like no one had seen before. Las Conchas burned incredibly hot and fast. In its first 14 hours, it scorched more than 43,000 acres. That's one acre per minute.
6: You can see those impacts from the fire and the severity, which they were uh, really high severity burns and you know, we're seeing limited growth.
4: 16,000 acres of Santa Clara burned. Soils were superheated. They became hard like concrete. All of the fish died in Santa Clara Creek, a tributary of the Rio Grande. And after the fires came dangerous floods that ripped apart the flood plain. Today, aspens and oaks are coming up where conifers once grew. And the Pueblo has planted about 800,000 seedlings like ponderosa pines and Douglas firs. In some spots though, those species that grew here in the past just can't survive in this warming world. But Danapa says it's important to keep connections with those forests of the past.
6: It's important that we preserve as much as we can because a lot of these trees are sacred to the people. They've been a part of their livelihood and a part of uh, their tradition and in their culture. And that's why it's so important for us to make sure that it tries to pit c- to it back as, as much as we can.
4: Laura McCarthy is the New Mexico State Forester. In her role, she brings various agencies and communities together to work on one of the state's most pressing problems. We are going through An unprecedented time in terms of the speed at which forests are changing and the environment is changing and we're talking about ecosystems that have evolved over millennia and so the big unknown questions are how will forests adapt and which pieces and parts within an ecosystem are going to respond quickly and adapt quickly, and which will not. We know how climate change drives bigger and hotter wildfires and a longer fire season. But rising temperatures and changes in precipitation, like less snowpack, that affects forests in other ways too. Drought, for example, kills trees outright. It also weakens a tree's defense against pests, like bark beetles.
0: When I'm walking out in the forest, I'm not looking for healthy trees. I'm looking for, for uh, any kind of tinge of, of something's wrong with that tree. And generally, if it's a bark beetle attacked tree, what you'll see is the whole canopy um, uh, kind of changed a uh, straw color. Eventually, it turns a red rust color if it's been dead for a couple years.
4: Every year, the state does aerial surveys. The 2020 survey showed a 9% increase in insect and drought stress from the year before.
0: There's a couple of signs um, that I look for, um, whether that's um, woodpeckers pecking at the bark. Um, Some other indicators are uh, the pitch tubes that have dried. And then you can see exit holes. If the tree has been attacked for so long, um, those eggs will, uh, will reach adulthood, and then they'll bore their way out of the tree, and you'll see these little, tiny, round exit holes.
4: Over the last decade, drought and hot conditions have caused bark beetles to kill more than one and a half million acres of New Mexico's forests. Defoliators like caterpillars and pinion needle scale, they've affected almost four million acres in that time. State forestry relies on science for surveys, treatments, understanding what's happening and what will happen. And part of Deputy Director Lindsey Quam's job is making sure that New Mexico's 23 sovereign tribes are a part of conversations around forest health.
7: I think the advantage that they have is that they hold lands that have been here for millennia they are on their ancestral lands. So they are the original stewards of this land. They've been here managing this landscape. They've seen the changes, they know the changes, you know, they have a lot of traditional ecological knowledge that I think we need to tap into and listen to, to help us with today's problems, because in their stories, in their culture, they speak of it. It's up to us to put the science with that knowledge. So it
8: kind of provided that, like, really. Today,
4: Chad Brown is the Forest Development and Restoration Manager for Santa Clara Pueblo. He started working in Santa Clara Canyon in 2012, the year after Las Conchas, when crews were dealing with floods and ash and debris flows. Over and over again, they had to figure out ways to remove the trees jamming up the canyon.
8: If we hadn't had done that, then it would have created like log dams and structures to where the next debris flow could have like impacted the homes down at the base of the canyon and within the community.
4: Now, yeah. he works on planting and restoration, me, and he sees how everything things. is connected.
8: It's been several years since our last flood, but all the trees that have been within this uh, this Santa Clara Creek tributary, they've seen the fire, they've seen the floods, and now they're getting impacted with the insects that are coming in because of the stresses from all those previous disturbance events. You're getting all these complex layers of things that are impacting these trees and you're seeing a lot more mortality.
4: This landscape, here in Santa Clara Canyon, it's been the people's homeland for millennia.
8: The governor in Traveria talks a lot about the forest and the canyon being the sanctuary, the grocery store, our pharmacy, and that's reflected back in the culture and the stories and the songs. You talk to anyone in the community, they all have a story about being in the canyon. Everyone has a favorite place in the canyon. It ties all the way back and there's that long lineage of people being here.
4: This landscape has taken care of them and the people of Santa Clara will continue taking care of this landscape no matter what changes are coming.
3: ON OUR LAND, WE TALK ABOUT ENVIRONMENTAL IMPACTS, BUT THERE IS ALSO A CRITICAL CONVERSATION AROUND LABOR, SPECIFICALLY THE WORKFORCE THAT FIGHTS THESE FIRES. WILDLAND FIREFIGHTERS ARE UNDER IMMENSE PRESSURE, TAKING ON LARGER FIRES THROUGHOUT A LONGER AND LONGER SEASON. THAT'S TAKING A TOLL ON THESE INDIVIDUALS AND THEIR FAMILIES. LAURA Pasca SAT DOWN WITH A GROUP OF THESE WORKERS LATE LAST YEAR TO SEE WHAT CONCERNS THEY HAVE AND HOW BEST TO ADDRESS THEM.
4: Marcus, Jonathan, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time.
3: Thanks
2: for having us. Thanks. Thank
4: you. I'm curious, can we start with you, Marcus? Can you talk a little bit about what life is like for a wildland firefighter?
2: Sure. I would say, you know, first of all, it's a very sort of satisfying and fulfilling career because a lot of people that do it like to be outside, like to help their neighbors. It's a a public service that I think a lot of us feel satisfied at doing at the end of the day. But really the realities that we're starting to face now with uh, potential climate change i would say increased fire seasons more complex longer duration we're really starting to see i would say firefighters in a crisis mode and this crisis mode is is due to attrition we have less firefighters on the ground at our federal levels because the pay and benefits are not adequate uh Folks are, are asked to basically have these year-round fire seasons where we're committed to go help across the country. So I would say we're, we're really kind of approaching a train wreck in, in and in a serious issue where firefighters are tired. They're kind of challenged uh, mentally and physically, and it's, it's really starting to enter a crisis mode, I would say.
4: So recently I saw an ad for Wildland Firefighters that said, the jobs paid $15 an hour. And I understand that's a little bit of a bump, a Biden era bump, but one, is that enough to live on? And and two, my understanding is these are considered seasonal jobs.
2: So that $15 an hour is is roughly for our entry level jobs, which as you said, just recently bumped up. So before that, it was anywhere from $13 to $14 an hour, depending where you're at in the country. And these are all temporary 1039 positions is what they're considered. Which have zero benefits except for medical care and the medical care they have to pay for it gets subsidized by the federal government during their employment but as soon as the winter and they they're laid off after six months they have to pay the full price so no retirement uh no opportunity to you know contribute to any kind of 401k basically zero benefits so when the fire season's over and this is the bulk of our federal firefighters are really these temporary employees they're they're the ones that make up three quarters of our hot shots they're the ones that make up three quarters of our hell attack and smoke jumpers as soon as the season's over they basically have no ability to access mental health care benefits to reach out for any kind of long-term physical uh issues they're having you know once they're laid off and if their fire family's not there to support them, they have no benefit.
4: Kelly Martin, you worked as a wildland firefighter for 35 years for the Forest Service and for the Bureau of Land Management. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this sort of long-term immersion in emergency situations, which is different from what we see sort of municipal firefighters or even police officers. Wildland firefighters are dealing with something very different.
1: Correct, the, the immersion that we're seeing now is way completely different than when I started 35 years ago. Um, I might have gained maybe 400 hours of overtime um, during a summer season. And now we're seeing people regularly working 1,000, 1,500. And I think I've even heard that there's people out there that are almost working like 2,000 hours uh, of overtime a year. So this constant immersion in an emergency um, mode um, is really having a a tremendous impact on on people's mental health and well-being. To say nothing of
4: their physical uh, well-being as well, when they're exposed to tremendous amounts of smoke, um, lots of risks. Earlier this year, a firefighter, Tim Hart, was killed on. Due to injuries, he sustained on a fire here in New Mexico. And after his death, I remember seeing a GoFundMe campaign to help his family um, dealing with the expenses due to his hospitalization. And I just remember thinking he was a federal employee working on a, on a federal fire. Um, what kinds of, how, how are firefighters taken care of when they sustain injuries or unfortunate Accidents like this.
2: So so that's kind of the reality of the situation. There's an organization that was started roughly 20 years ago called the Wildland Firefighter Foundation um, And really that organization was the catalyst and it's all charity donations from basically wildland firefighters supporting each other So I would say recently Land management agencies have started to do a better job. I would give credit there But I would say starting to and and we're seeing where they're not being able to cover, you know, these GoFundMe and the Wildland Firefighter Foundation cover Tim's family to be able to travel down, be able to cover mortgage and bills when he's in a tough position in a hospital. Any of our firefighters be able to help the family make it through because these these families that we have basically depend on us being firefighters and us going and, and working and being away from home for six months out of the year. So as soon as that money's gone there's no there's no base there's no help for the family.
4: Jonathan you were a wildland firefighter for over a decade I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the private struggles that wildland firefighters are going through that you know we in the public just have no idea these things are happening.
9: Yeah Uh, thanks again for the opportunity to be here Um, some of the private struggles that you know, I went through and I, I know my um, friends have gone through or just the isolation um, that you feel and the separation you have from your friends, from your families back home, um, the the events that you miss out on birthdays, weddings, graduations. Um, I, I even know of, uh, you know, husbands and partners that were uh, on, I was on fire with while their wife delivered, you know, their, their children. Um, you miss out on these uh significant moments and you know when when it comes time to lay down at night um and, and and try to get some sleep um you know you think about these things um and it really begins to to weigh on you what am i missing out on you know what am i doing here when that goes on um uh you know it becomes a real struggle and sometimes were able to successfully um, bury or suppress those memories. But, um, you know, it comes out in the wintertime. Uh, people turn to alcohol or drugs um, we've lost, uh, you know, partners and friends to suicide from it all. And and so it's a real problem.
4: I think the public, you know, we very much have this perception of of wild and firefighters when our communities are at risk, you know, people go out there with signs and want to bake cookies and drop off water and are are so grateful when when y'all arrive. Um, But it really feels to me that there's this disconnect between what we the public think you all are going through and, and what is actually happening? And I'm curious, how are you supported by these federal agencies that we all pay taxes to, um, and, and are you know imagining that you're being supported? Is there support for things like depression or PTSD or anxiety or helping address this work-life balance that seems to be a problem?
2: I would say those are catchwords that that agency, different agency leadership have thrown out there. Work-life balance. But the reality, Laura, is that these programs are, are anemic at best. And so I would be remiss to say that there's no help. We do have uh, help networks, but I myself have tried to look into them. Like for me as a first responder to, to seek help on a particular kind of issue, like there's no counselors in my area that specialize in that, that are within that program. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people have faced with. It's very difficult to find mental health help on there. It's very difficult to uh, go through the program and really you only get like five to seven visits and then it's on you. So I would say it's very poor and I think it's a known issue and, and folks are working on it but at a very slow rate to really make a significant change I would say. We need more money. WE NEED BETTER PROGRAMS. WE NEED MORE SUPPORT.
4: WELL, THANK YOU, ALL THREE OF YOU, SO MUCH FOR THIS CONVERSATION. I HAVE LEARNED SO MUCH, AND I REALLY APPRECIATE YOUR TIME AND YOUR ENERGY ON THIS TOPIC.
2: THANK YOU SO MUCH FOR HAVING US, LAURA. I THINK THIS IS AN ISSUE. IT'S IMPORTANT TO NEW MEXICO. IT'S IMPORTANT TO THE UNITED STATES, AND I APPRECIATE YOUR TIME AND
6: INTEREST.
3: AFTER THAT CONVERSATION LATE LAST YEAR, ENVIRONMENT REPORTER LAURA PASKUS WANTED TO FIND OUT WHAT CHANGES THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION AND CONGRESS were making. AND SEE WHAT THE OUTLOOK FOR RECRUITING WILDLAND FIREFIGHTERS IN NEW MEXICO LOOKS LIKE. WHAT SHE DISCOVERED WAS NOT REASSURING.
4: ONE OF THE THINGS THAT WE SPOKE ABOUT LAST YEAR, RIGHT ABOUT THE TIME WE DID THAT INTERVIEW, THE FOREST SERVICE WAS, HAD JUST RAISED PAY, I THINK, TO $15 AN HOUR, um, WHICH REALLY SEEMS REALLY LOW, GIVEN THE RISKS THAT PEOPLE FACE. BUT I'M CURIOUS IF YOU HAVE A SENSE OF, what staffing looks like for the coming fire season, or if we know that yet.
9: I think the early indications are that we're still coming up woefully short um, in recruiting talent to come and do this job. It's a hard job. Uh, Yes, the administration implemented a, you know, a minimum wage of $15 an hour uh, for wildland firefighters. Um, And then um, The Budget and Infrastructure Act was passed, um, which sought to uh, increase salaries by either $20,000 or 50%, whichever was less, for a remaining amount of the workforce, I think, up to the GS-9 level. And that was supposed to be implemented on October 1st. Um, To my best uh, knowledge, uh, speaking with friends across the country that are still um, working for the federal agencies that are, are under GS-9, they still haven't received that money. Um, and that's really weighing on them, and that's really actually contributing for people to decide to just walk away altogether, um, right? There's, uh, there's other agencies or uh, entities that they can work for where uh, they are valued. Um, and not saying that they're not valued. Um, you know, everybody that I've ever worked for and either the Department of Interior, agencies, or Forest Service has been openly appreciative for the work that we've done. But sometimes, you know, thanks doesn't fill up the bank account and put food on the table, um, pay for health care, um, raise a family, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think that um, had those raises come when they should have come, uh, we might be seeing a little bit of a different story. But you know, right now it's it's looking pretty bleak for um, retention and recruitment in um, a lot of the areas around the country.
4: What does it potentially mean for communities in the West if there isn't the federal workforce that is required?
9: You're still going to have a local or state jurisdiction show up and um, you'll probably still have a federal component. It just means that the response times are going to lag really and and truly Um, that's kind of (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of the difference maker, right? Um, you're gonna somebody's gonna pick up the phone and call 911, and they're gonna wonder where these resources are. Um, and that's just kind of, in my mind, I, I feel like that's that's a little bit unacceptable. Uh, we are expecting and accustomed to emergency services showing up promptly, um, and if they're in proximity, they will. But if we continue to have a retention issue and a <laughs> recruitment issue it's really gonna limit um, our national capacity to address uh, what's turning to be a a growing crisis, not just in the West.
4: Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for your continued work and for talking to me about these important issues.
9: Thank you,
3: I appreciate it. This year so far, firefighters have shown up to every fire across New Mexico, but this can't be all on them. If you live in a wildfire prone area, There are things you need to do to protect yourself, your family, your property, and your neighbors. Our crew visited with Tom Swetnam outside of Jemez Springs to learn exactly what precautions people should be taking.
4: Many people living in the Jemez Mountains have homes tucked into the forest. Their relationships with nature are intimate and sometimes tricky. A few years ago, Tom Swetnam moved back to the Jemez where he grew up.
10: My father was a forest ranger, and so we lived here in the 1960s, and this has always been home. New Mexico has always been home, so I'm coming home.
4: Swetnam is a tree ring expert and emeritus professor at the University of Arizona. He studies drought and past fires in tree ring records, and he's someone who knows well how fires in the southwest are becoming bigger and hotter.
10: When I told some folks uh, that I was moving to Hamas Springs, and then I was moving up into this neighborhood, they said, you're moving where? (laughs) Right up in the forest, right in, you know, the so-called wildland urban interface, right in the middle of a pretty dense and dangerous forest. Yeah, I think people were surprised, you know, that that me, who I've been preaching about fire problems and houses and, and forests as a problem, that I would move to a place like that. All over the Hamas, there's probably more than a 1,000 homes built within forests like this, Ponderosa Pine, that are really overgrown with too many fuels now. And as we come into a drought season, it's the risk for fire just, just getting greater and greater.
4: Decades of fire suppression on top of drought and a warmer climate have created conditions that make fires burn faster and hotter than past centuries. Thinning forests can help reduce that risk and people can also prepare their homes.
10: A fire-wise home means that it's less likely to catch on fire as a fire comes, approaches it and passes by. And so what you're trying to do is to keep the fire from starting on any part of the structure, any especially wooden parts of the structure, any exposed wood. So you move the fuels away from the, the house and the farther away, the better. 30 feet to 50 feet is sort of a minimum. You want to get your firewood away from the house, and you want to get trees away from the house, and you want to have cleared space around the house. In addition to all the fuel that's around typically people's houses up here, commonly you'll see these outdoor propane tanks. And those are a big risk because if fire gets under those and starts heating them up, um, they will pop off a, a, a safety valve and start shooting flames out of the top of them. And if that safety valve actually doesn't work like it's supposed to, it'll blow up and it'll go off like a bomb.
4: Sweatnam says he still has work to do around his own property to make sure he's ready for what might be an early fire season. He's going to remove old wood near the house, bury that propane tank, and maybe cut more trees. It's important to be thinking ahead, not just for your own home, but for the sake of your neighbors and the firefighters who come in when everyone else is evacuating
10: firefighters have lost their lives trying to save homes. right? But if you have treated around your home and removed the fuels around your home, it's much more defensible. And so firefighters are much more likely to come in there and actually try to save your home. And it'll be a safer place for them to be while they're trying to put the fire out. And likewise, for your neighbors, you know, um, if you don't treat your property, but your neighbor does, your neighbor's still at great risk because your house may burn and cause embers and heat and flames to come over onto their house. So we're in this together with the firefighters in the community. Uh, it's, it's more about, you know, doing this, not just for yourself, but for everyone.
4: This year's dry conditions are scary, especially for people living within the forest. Swetnam says people can protect their homes and their communities, keep track of local weather conditions, keep in touch with their neighbors and officials, and know when it's time to leave. Eitan, welcome, thanks for joining me. So in the previous segment, we heard from Tom Swetnam, who described some ways that people can protect their homes from wildfires. Um, Is there help for this sort of work, for people to be, you know, getting ready for wildfires?
11: Yeah, um, there's there's quite a few resources in New Mexico to help uh, residents, homeowners, landowners. And uh, a few really good resources. So uh, New Mexico Forestry Division in the Environment or Energy Minerals Natural Resource Department, EMNRD, they have uh, a lot of resources on their website um, and their staff uh, at their district offices often talk to uh, residents about what they can do. Another great resource is your local fire department. Many of New Mexicans live in rural areas, and your volunteer fire department is a great resource. Uh, They're often the ones that are going to be the first responders if there's a call, Um, and so they're great to talk to. Um, uh, Another good resource is uh, a website called Fire Adapted New Mexico uh, Learning Network, or FACNM.org. And uh, there's a lot of resources on there and even some uh, workbooks that uh, a resident can take the workbook and walk around their residence and score themselves and figure out what are some of the things they can do. Uh, And often a lot of these approaches start from the structure and work their way out.
4: So one of the things that we heard um, from some folks is that they didn't hear about the McBride evacuation orders until like somebody had contacted them because they saw it on social media. Do you have recommendations for how people can stay informed during fire season or during a fire event?
11: Yeah, the communication, especially when an incident is first occurring and and evolving is is really tricky. Talking to your local fire department, again, can help you uh, find out if there's uh, a list or a system that the municipality or the county uses. I know where I live. Uh, there's uh, an alert system, and I get alert emails about all sorts of incidents, not just wildfire, but also for red flag days, uh, which it, red flag day indicates that if a fire starts, it'll spread rapidly. Um, so. Uh, connecting with your local um, responders is a great first step. I think it's a lot of learning. Uh, I think we need to be constantly uh, evaluating, adapting and trying things um, uh, and, and have a humble approach to this.
4: The first Earth Day in the United States was April 22, 1970. During that time, Congress was passing bipartisan laws, laws reckoning with decades of pollution. These are laws like the Clean Air and Water Acts, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Endangered Species Act, and the Safe Drinking Water Act. Today, looking around the United States, looking around New Mexico, we see how those laws enacted 50 years ago have mattered to each of us. As a society, we saw what pollution was doing to us, to the environment, to future generations, and we knew we had to do something. Of course, a lot of things have changed since the 1970s, some for the better, and some, well, here in New Mexico, on average, it's about three degrees warmer than it was. Our mountain snowpacks have changed. Our rivers flow with less water than they did decades ago. And many of our reservoirs continue to be frighteningly low year after year. Not only do fires burn bigger, fire season is longer. And our forests often don't recover afterwards. Just a few weeks ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released yet another assessment. We know why the climate is changing. We've pumped and pumped fossil fuels out of the ground and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. This has warmed our planet. It's warmed our soils, our forests, our farmlands. Scientists keep telling us we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions immediately and drastically. Scientists, along with indigenous communities, people with deep traditional and ecological knowledge, they all keep telling us, we have the tools to cut greenhouse gas emissions, to mitigate the worst of the impacts, to adapt to the changes we already see and know. And yet, even here in New Mexico, where we see the consequences of climate change so very clearly Lawmakers and government leaders are not truly reckoning, not just with the impacts of climate change, but with our state's role in causing climate change. Almost 20 years ago, I interviewed Russell Train. He died in 2012, but he was the nation's second administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, which was created in 1970, the year of that first Earth Day. When I talked to him, he was 84 years old. He'd served under Presidents Nixon and Ford, and we spoke when George W. Bush was president, just a few years after 9-11. I asked him then in 2004 if he thought Congress could still pass laws like the Clean Water Act or the Safe Drinking Water Act. He said that he wasn't sure not because environmental issues weren't still important or because the laws didn't work, no. He said that once Congress started passing those laws, the industries they threatened that were now being regulated started paying closer attention to politics and started spending a lot more money. Train told me at the time that team playing with industry wasn't new to government, but he had watched it change. He watched how business lobbyists in Washington, DC became very organized when it came to the environment. And we know that's even more true today across the US, including here in New Mexico. Here in New Mexico, we see the signs of climate change all around us, every day and all the time. We know why the rivers are drying why farmers don't have enough water, why this year in April, our fire season is already absolute madness. And we need to talk about why that's happening and about how we are accelerating those changes by continuing to develop fossil fuels in the state, by continuing to invest in fossil fuels, by not pivoting more quickly toward efficiency and renewables. In New Mexico, We do not shy away from hard conversations about culture, history, land. We need to have more of those hard conversations about land, about water, and about why our lands are drying and our water shrinking. To see these realities on the ground, like we do on our show all the time, it's hard, it's horrible, but it's harder to see that there are paths forward, paths that will protect future New Mexicans, and to know we are deciding not to take those paths. 52 years after that first Earth Day, it is not time to celebrate. It is time to get to work.
3: Thank you, Laura, for that message. We should all be thinking about how we can better prepare ourselves and our environment for the changes coming in the year ahead. But for fire management officials, those adjustments need to happen right now. We've seen the risks that come with prescribed fires, even this early in the year. So what else can be done to limit damage later in the summer?
4: Welcome back. So given all that we know about wildfires and how fire season is changing, what tools do federal agencies, state agencies really have when it comes to addressing our overly dense forests and these warming conditions?
11: Yeah, uh, most of the tools involve uh, removing trees and bringing the process of fire back into the ecosystem. Uh, Usually uh, in a prescribed fire situation when people choose the time, place, and weather conditions, sometimes it's uh, a, a fire that is naturally ignited from lightning and uh, it's decided to be managed for resource benefit, for the benefit of the forest. Um, uh, Most projects start uh, with a place and an idea, and then uh, tree removal of some sort happens. Oftentimes it's the smallest uh, and sometimes medium-sized trees. Um, If the wood can get used, great. Oftentimes these places are on really steep slopes uh, and far away from roads, so wood utilization can't always happen, Uh, but even when the wood is used, the tops and limbs get, you know, they they don't get removed, so they're laying on the ground. And uh, there's a few different options from there. Uh, Sometimes people will pile them and you'll see piles on a hillside and those piles will get burned in the winter. And sometimes they're spread around uh, and then a prescribed fire is planned afterwards and that fire, Recycles the nutrients and reduces the fire hazard of the of the hillside.
4: So earlier this year, when we were trying to get ahead of fire season, um, we were hoping to go out with your organization to do uh, to watch a prescribed fire out in the Zuni Mountains, and that kind of got rescheduled. And now we're looking at the fall. What, uh, you know, what? And and now we've seen you know the Hermit Peak fire. Um, got it was a prescribed fire that when out of control, what, what do we do when prescribed fire doesn't work? Like that's such an important part of, of, of getting fire back into the system, an important tool. Like what do we do when, when that's not working?
11: Yeah, it's tricky. Um, uh, in the example you gave about the, the burn you were gonna come out to, um, uh, we're, we're waiting and postponing. Um, but we're, our plan still is to to put fire on the ground and to use that tool. Um, so I think time, waiting for the right window, is often one approach to dealing with um, you know the you know avoiding an unfortunate incident like the Hermit's Peak fire. Um, in some places, uh, uh, they have these mastication machines that um, deal with the fuels on the ground by turning them into smaller and smaller. Uh, fuels and they, they kind of shred the the wood up. That's one approach. Um, and another one is uh, is to uh, put the the sticks into piles, burn them, and don't come back for a prescribed burn. That's another option. Or don't come back for a broadcast sur- prescribed burn where uh, you just burn the piles and uh, and then you, uh, you you call the project done. <laughs>
4: So we know that fire is inevitable in Western forests. And we, you know, as a society, need to accept and understand that um, we're not going to change that. So what do maybe we need to change about us and, and how we use forests, relate to forests, live near forests?
0: Yeah, well,
11: that that's uh, that's the big question. Uh, we live in forests. We recreate in forests. We use forests for uh, ceremonial, spiritual purposes. Um, uh, they're a source uh, for the economy. They're, you know, hunting is a really big um, part of New Mexico's economy. Uh, so, yeah, understanding our relationship to the forests and the fire that is going to happen in them is really important. Um, I don't have a, a great answer. I, I think it's a lot of learning. Uh, I think we need to be constantly uh, evaluating, adapting and trying things um, uh, and, and have a humble approach to this. Uh, I think there's a lot of you know, great resource managers, great fire managers in New Mexico, uh, great researchers, um, but uh, you know, the, the answer
3: is not a straight line and it's not super clear. THESE ARE SERIOUS CHALLENGES, SCARY ONES, AND EXPENSIVE TOO. BUT IF WE PLAN AHEAD, LEARN FROM HISTORY, COOPERATE WITH ONE ANOTHER, THERE ARE CERTAINLY THINGS WE CAN DO TO PROTECT OUR COMMUNITIES, OUR WATERSHEDS, AND CONTINUE TO BUILD NEW RELATIONSHIPS WITH OUR FORESTS. WE END OUR SHOW WITH AN INSPIRATIONAL Arland LAND EPISODE WHEN OUR CREW DISCOVERED HOW THE Cerro NEGADO FOREST COUNCIL HELPS PROTECT THE CARSON NATIONAL FOREST.
4: A few years ago, J.R. Logan looked out across his backyard in San Cristobal in northern New Mexico. It was getting on toward fall, when he and others who rely upon wood to heat their homes drive hours to other parts of the forest. Then they pay for U.S. Forest Service permits to collect wood.
5: It just made no sense to me sitting in my valley that I would have to go so far to get firewood when looking literally out of my back door, there's a beautiful stand of Ponderosa's where the undergrowth has grown in thick and poses a huge risk to those trees and to my community and to the watershed. And I thought there just has to be a way where I can, you know, make it possible, where we can make it possible for me and my neighbors to be able to cut that wood, which is incredibly valuable to us as firewood and is in our own backyards, and at the same time make our community and our watershed safer. We have special protocols
4: Logan met with know, elders and leaders and in, in his community. That, you know,
10: Traditionally, um, we're a collectivist culture where the group is more important than the individual.
4: They got to talking about how to create a forest council and structure it as a community development project. They talked about acequias, land grants, and the long history of participatory democracy in northern New Mexico.
10: The governance, instead of creating a new system of governance, let's use the old ancient institutional forms of organization that we've had here for centuries, three, four hundred years, and that is the distribution of water has had a very appropriate and very successful uh, governance system. The land grants also have had a long history of governance, very democratic, very participatory.
7: is what it's called parciantes when it comes to a ditch. Uh, who, who Apaychante is a person that has a piece of land that needs irrigating. So they needed a mayor to oversee that.
4: They worked with the Carson National Forest, wrote a grant proposal, based bylaws on acequias and land grants, and they created the Cerro Negro Forest Council. Here, there are almost 300 acres of pinyon, juniper, and sage forest lands between the villages of San Cristobal and Valdez that need to be treated thinned so the forest is healthier, so it's closer to how it was before the U.S. government implemented fire suppression policies.
5: Our project in particular is designed to remove fuels that otherwise would really ramp up and supercharge fire behavior were we to see a fire occur in this area.
4: When the U.S. government stopped letting forests burn, they became overcrowded with smaller trees, all competing for water and sunlight and becoming additional fuel for wildfires, beating them along with drought and rising temperatures to burn hotter and bigger than in the past.
5: This isn't a restoration project like you might see in Ponderosa Pine where we're, we're truly restoring an ecosystem to a place that it was millennia ago. Rather, this is restoration for the benefit of people but also the benefit for the environment in the sense that we're, we're preventing what would otherwise be an uncharacteristic fire, especially as we see you know, the climate getting warmer, hotter, and drier over the long run.
4: The Forest Service and the council divided the forest here into one-acre blocks and assigned them to linieros or woodcutters. Trees to remain are marked, and the others can be cut. A mayordomo oversees the work and leñeros can use the wood at home or sell it, and the council pays them $300 an acre for their work. That's less than what the Forest Service pays contractors. And although the work can be slower, it's a model for other places too. Already, councils have popped up in Southern Taos County.
12: My role in this is, is that I, um, I'm i basically the leñero, the guy that uh, cuts it and bucks it takes it home, chops it up, and I, I use it for, uh, for heating my home. Uh, it's, it's my uh, source of uh, energy for heating back at the house. But uh, yeah, I've been on this. I've already accomplished three one-acre blocks, and I'm currently working just about finishing up my fourth. And I've got yet another one that I've been assigned that I've got to get started on and try to get that done before the end of the winter. Having to drive 15 minutes as opposed to two hours to get a good load of uh, the best wood that I can say there is to burn pignon. uh, I mean, this is awesome. I'm, I'm really glad this opened up because I was getting kind of worried about finding places to go get wood there. For Logan
4: and leñeros like Córdova, their time in the forest isn't just about cutting wood. It's about connecting with the past and spending time with family.
12: Sometimes I just come out here and just sit around. Uh, I work really slow uh, and, you know, I'm always looking for deer, of course. Now that it's so open after they've cleaned this up, I mean, you can really, you, you see more and of an abundance of deer than what we used to in the past.
4: Historically, the relationship between the U.S. Forest Service and communities in northern New Mexico has been fraught, to say the least. The federal agency took over common lands when it was formed in the early 20th century, pushing people off their grazing lands and hunting grounds, requiring permits for woodcutting and pinion gathering, closing access to the forests people had visited for generations. This council is a step toward healing, not just the land, but
7: communities. I think the situation right now is really nice in in this respect that we're working with the Forest Service. Forest Service is is, uh, cooperating with us, we're cooperating with them, Uh, and things are getting done. In some cases, not in all cases, is where a family comes out, you know. Mom and dad, and they bring two or three kids with them, and they're all helping. And then, of course, they take their little break for their little lunch or whatever, which is you know amazing. It's like nice.
4: Being a leñero is hard work, but there's an art to it too. Enjoy at being home in the forest.
12: Well, let's say this uh, this, in a sense, is a rancho, right? Uh, rancho de Leña de Pinon. So, why don't we say, Allá en el rancho grande, allá donde vivía. Había una rancherita que alegre me decía, alegre me decía. <laughs> there you go. From there on, it costs a dollar. <laughs>
4: <laughs> For our land and New Mexico in focus, I'm Laura Pascas.
1: Funding for New Mexico and Focus provided by viewers like you.
0: Times like this so appreciate all of the very talented people that we work with here at the station that make a special like this happen. Again, our uh, lane, so to speak, is not to give you the breaking news bit by minute updates on these fires, but to provide some important context about why the wildfires are happening, why they're so much worse, and what folks are doing to try to address it. i want to start, of course, with the very talented Laura Paskus, our R-Land correspondent and producer, also production manager, Anthony Lostetter, our producers, Lou Divizio and Kathy Wimmer, our host, Gene Grant, also the great and talented production team, Aaron Senna, Robert McDermott, Kevin Maestas, Benjamin Yazza, our student crew, Bennett Riley, Junko Featherston, and Jeanette Edios. Uh, so many folks, I'm going to leave out some, but we appreciate all of their hard work on this special. We hope it helps you understand a little better what's going on around you and uh, we more than anything else wish everybody nothing but safety during this wildfire season if you are one of those folks who are facing possible evacuation with the cook's peak fire our thoughts with you and we hope that today's winds don't uh, lead to more wildfires across the state but we know it's inevitable if not today summer and so we encourage you all to stay safe and stay healthy also encourage you to go to our website, newmexicoandfocus.org, for a great list of resources uh, regarding wildfires. Uh, So if you need anything there, please head to the website and find a bunch there. So that'll do it for this episode. We'll be back on Monday with more. Until then, again, thanks for listening.